Hi, I'm Matt Ellis, and I'm the pastor of the First Baptist Church in Polk City, Florida, and welcome to the January 16th episode of Enjoying the Bible Podcast. Uh, for today's reading, uh, we're going to look at Genesis 39 and 40 and Matthew chapter 11. So if you've not already read those passages on version or um, you know wherever you're reading that, um, go ahead and read Genesis 39 and 40 and Matthew chapter 11. I hope you're ready. Let's get started. Right, in Genesis 39, we're reintroduced to the story, brought back into the story of Joseph. That is going to continue nonstop until the end of uh, Genesis, Genesis chapter 50. So in Genesis 39, uh, we are introduced back into it, we're brought back into it, and we realize that uh, these Ishmaelites... Uh, this caravan that was uh, m- moving toward Egypt that Joseph's brothers sold him to, uh, they have now arrived in Egypt and they sell him. Uh, and we realize in verse 1 that they sold him to uh, an Egyptian named Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh and the captain of the guards. So he's someone who was pretty high up, we would assume, um, in uh, Egypt. So... Uh, He is there, and in verses 1 through 6, we come to realize that God's hand of blessing is on Joseph. And so whatever he does, God blesses. Potiphar recognizes this and then elevates Joseph from being just a common slave in his household to his personal attendant. He wanted Joseph to, to be closer. He believed that he could trust him. He saw God's hand of blessing on him. Well, with blessing, oftentimes comes problems. Um, Sin is always crouching at the door. And when God blesses us, that blessing may, not, not because of the Lord, but that blessing in itself may cause us to be the object of temptation and sin. And that's what we see in verses 6 through 9, the second part of verse 6 through 9. Uh, Joseph is uh, apparently an attractive uh, young man. Now, once again, whenever the Bible says that someone is attractive, like Moses was an attractive young baby, and uh, it says Joseph was attractive at the end of verse 6, we need to understand that that may not have been we may look at him and think, really? You call that attractive? Because realize that every culture and in every era of Earth's history, there are different features that are seen to be attractive, right? And so I, I, I just want you to realize that this whole thing of what is attractive and what is not is a moving target, is a moving target. And so when we realize in Genesis 39 verse 6 that it says that he was attractive, he was attractive in that era, in that time, with whatever it was that they uh, valued as being attractive. Maybe that many had all of his teeth. I don't know. But uh, so he was attractive, and Potiphar's wife asked him to have sexual relations with her. Um, Joseph, being a man of integrity, refused to do so. Now, let me tell you this. this is, we see a principle as Joseph uh, speaks with her. He does not simply say no. 
And friend, I'm telling you that when we are fighting against temptation, sometimes we need to run like Joseph did a little bit later on, and sometimes we need to stand and stand up for what is right. We have to determine, the Holy Spirit has to reveal to us which is appropriate. But here, in this instance, he's standing up for what is right. Now, I want you to know that he didn't just say no. He gave his reasons. And sometimes that's absolutely appropriate. Maybe we don't need to share with others what our reasons are, but we need to know why it is that we are not going to step off into sin. The more reasons and the stronger those reasons are, the less prone we are to step off into sin. You can't just say no. You've got to know why am I saying no. Well, for Joseph, he said, I cannot do this because I would violate my boss's trust, Potiphar's trust, and I would sin against God. So he had two very strong reasons for why he was saying no. In verses 10 through 20, uh, we realize that Potiphar's wife did not take that no for an answer. She did not value integrity. She did not value fidelity. Uh, and so she continued to pursue him. And on one occasion, she grabbed him, grabbed his outer garment, and he fled and left his garment with her. Well, she felt rejected. She felt as if he had slighted her. And so now the lust that she had for him was replaced with disdain for him and hatred for him. And so she made up a story that got him put in prison. Now, one of the things that I wonder, and we're not told this in the, in the story, but one of the things I wonder is if Potiphar didn't realize that his wife was lying. You know, he probably, if he had accused her of lying, and this was a very public thing there in his household, if he had accused her of lying, this would have shamed her and caused all sorts of problems. And so I wonder if it was easier for him just to put Joseph in prison. I suspect Joseph is a common slave that Potiphar could have had him killed for doing this to his wife, but instead he put him in prison. I just wonder if Potiphar did not believe in his heart that Joseph was being wrongly accused, but to maintain the status quo in his family, he just sent Joseph off to prison rather than killing him. Well, we realize in verses 21 through 23 that Joseph, even there in prison, is excelling. Okay, so I want to give you the big idea, one of the takeaways from this chapter, and it's this. That Joseph is a man of integrity, but Joseph is also a diamond in the rough. Remember, he was a spoiled brat as a kid. God is going to use him powerfully, but he was a spoiled brat, and God was blessing him, but then he threw that in the faces of his brothers when he shared with them the dream of how they were going to bow down to him and all of this. He didn't... It, he. he he did not have humility, you know, and he thought very highly of himself. His dad did a great job of making him feel like a spoiled brat. And so I want you to know that before God can use somebody powerfully, he has to shave off those rough edges. He has to take us through things that bring us to our knees and cause us to realize that we are nothing apart from him and he is everything. I love the way that A.W. Tozer, one of, one of my favorite authors, I, I love what he said when he said this. He said, It is doubtful whether God can bless a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply.
Let me say that again. And of course, he said, man, but this this applies to men and women. It is doubtful whether God can bless a man or a woman greatly until he has hurt him deeply. Now, what A.W. Tozer means is not that God finds delight in hurting us. What he does mean is that in order for God to use us, in order for God to use us greatly for his purposes, he has to bring us to a point where we will not touch the glory. We will not claim that we were a part of that victory or that achievement or that blessing, that we gladly take the posture of John the Baptist when he heard that Jesus was getting more and more popular, that we need to take the posture of John the Baptist and say, I must decrease even as he increases. Uh, that's what I believe we're seeing in Genesis 39. That's why this injustice has happened in every, is there, in everything else. Yes, it is, is unjust, but God is using this to mold Joseph and to break Joseph so that he can be somebody that God can move powerfully through. And friend, this is not just a principle that applies to Joseph. I believe it applies to us. And so therefore, and James understood this, count it all joy when you fall into various trials and temptations, knowing that the trying of your faith works patience. This is James's understanding, that before God can get us to a place of spiritual maturity and blessing, he has to take us through difficulties. This is why we can embrace even injustice. Okay, in Genesis chapter 40, it's a pretty self-explanatory chapter, but uh, we'll just briefly go through it. For some unknown reason that we're not told about, Pharaoh becomes angry at his chief cupbearer and his chief baker. We're not sure what led up to this, but he's angered at them, and so he throws them in prison, and the prison guard puts Joseph in charge of them. He, he puts Joseph in charge of them as their attendant. And uh, probably because the, uh, uh, the one who was over the prison suspected that eventually one or both of these guys would be reinstated to their position, uh, to Pharaoh. And so the, the guard just wanted to take care of these guys while they were in prison, while Pharaoh was cooling down. And so he put Joseph in charge of them. He trusted Joseph completely. Uh, in verses 5 through 8, they both have dreams, and Joseph uh, asks about the dreams and makes it clear that interpretation belongs to God. What we are seeing here is Joseph is catching on that his life is nothing if it were not for God. And so he is speaking to them, and, and he's not saying, hey, I can interpret this dream. He is giving God the credit. And so God's humbling of him is achieving its purposes. It's working its way out in Joseph's life. Well, in verses 9 through 15, the cupbearer's dream, uh, he reveals his dream and uh, gets his interpretation, and he is told that he's going to be restored to his position in three days. And Joseph asks him, please remember me when you go back to Pharaoh. Because this is the cupbearer. This is the one who stands beside Pharaoh. And before Pharaoh drinks of anything, the cupbearer is probably going to take a sip of that just to make sure there's no poison or anything in there. Um, and because this was always a threat. And so the cupbearer was going to be somebody that Pharaoh greatly trusted. And so Joseph said, when you are put back into your position and you are right beside Pharaoh, please 
Tell him about me. Plead for me. Let him know that I'm down here unjustly being treated. And let him know that that I, by the power of, of God Almighty, have interpreted this dream. Well, in verses 16 through 19, the baker's dream uh, is revealed and interpreted, and he's told that he is going to be hung. Well, in verses 20 through 22, we're made clear that Joseph's interpretations proved true, that the cupbearer was reinstated three days later, and the baker was hung. Um, in verse 23, it ends with this, Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph he forgot him. And so Joseph is going to sit in prison for about two more years. So what is going on? Is, is God not caring? Has God forgotten about Joseph? Is, is God wringing his hands and saying, what can I do to get the cupbearer to remember Joseph? Is that what's going on? No, if, if you believe those things, you serve a weak God, and that's not the God of the Bible. What we believe is that even in this forgetfulness of the cupbearer, even in the injustice of all of this, God is working things out. And he is honing Joseph. He is chiseling off those edges. He is getting Joseph ready. And friend, I'm telling you that certainly we can learn lessons in the good times, but oftentimes, if you're like me, it takes difficulties. God has to bring difficulties into our life to humble us and to cause us to realize our desperate need of Him. And that's why we should embrace the difficulties and the trials of life, not because we like difficulties. It's because we like what they produce in us. And so, friend, I'm telling you, how would it change the way we look? How would it change the way we look at difficulties if instead of seeing them as just a natural part of living in a broken world and instead saw them as God's gracious gifts to us, undesirable as they are, they're God's gracious gifts to us to hone us, to chisel off those edges, so that however God chooses to use us, we will be much more fit, ready for every good work as we respond appropriately to these difficulties and realize that we are nothing apart from Christ, but through Him and because of Him, we can do whatever He desires for us to do. Okay, so now we're at Matthew 11, and I'm telling you, I love the first part of this chapter. I love the whole chapter, but I really love the first part of this chapter. Um, let me briefly let you know of, of what is taking place and just kind of highlight a few points. The first thing that we see is that uh, in verse 2, it says, Now when John heard in prison what the Christ was doing, he sent a message through his disciples and asked him, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Do you hear this? John the baptizer, who at one time said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Now he is sending from prison. He is sending messengers and saying, Are you the Christ? Are you the, the Lamb of God? Or should we expect somebody else? So what's going on? Let me tell you what I believe is taking place. I believe that in John the Baptist's heart of hearts, he knows Jesus is the Messiah. He knows it. He knows it. 
But what he is going through, I believe, right now is discouragement. Discouragement. This is not playing out like he thought that it would play out, and he's having doubts. And, and we see this throughout Scripture. We've been in Genesis. We realize that Abraham, the father of those who have faith, had his doubts. He, you know, in a time of famine, he went off to Egypt. He lied about his relationship with his wife. And so it is not a slam to these Bible characters to say that they all had lapses of faith. And I believe that's what's going on with John the Baptist. He's, he's in prison and this isn't playing out like he thought it was going to. You know, he's going to be the one who comes and makes ready for the king, the Messiah, who's going to set up his throne here on planet Earth. And, and this is not taking place the way he thought it would. And now he's in prison and facing potential death. And he just needs assurances. I believe that's what this question was seeking. He knew Jesus was the one. He just needed to be assured. Have you ever struggled in your faith? Have you ever thought, I know that God is real. I know that Jesus is in my heart, but I just need assurance right now because I'm struggling. I think that's what John the Baptist was experiencing. And so whenever uh, they, his disciples, uh, who were not in prison, but when his disciples arrived to Jesus in verses 4 through 6, Jesus answered their question. You know, he said, go and report to John what you hear and see. Go tell him what you're hearing me say and go tell him what you're seeing me do. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cleansed, the deaf, are, uh, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor are told the good news, and blessed is the one who isn't offended by me. So what's Jesus doing? He is recalling to John the baptizer and to his disciples that Jesus is who he has presented himself to be that he is the long-awaited Messiah because, and I've referenced these verses before, he's referring back to verses like Isaiah 29, verses 18 and 19, and Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1, that said that the Messiah, when he comes, he will do these works, and he will speak this way. And so Jesus answers their question. And then in verse 7, after he answered their question, it says, as these men were leaving, okay? So you would think, okay, that's done. Jesus answered their question. It's over with. No, not with Jesus, not with his heart of compassion for people. You know, he knew that John the Baptist needed assurance, and so he gave him the answer, gave his disciples the answer to give to him that he needed but he also knows that John the Baptist needs encouragement. He doesn't just need answers, he needs encouragement. And so as they are walking away, and I believe that these disciples were hearing what Jesus said because Jesus wasn't having a personal conversation, I believe he was speaking to a crowd. And so he elevated his voice, and as John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowds. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swaying in the wind? You know, somebody who's wishy-washy back and forth, says what people want to hear, changes what he says when it gets rough? No. What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothes? Did you go out to find somebody who, you know, uh, had has life on a silver platter and life is easy? Did you go out for somebody in soft clothes? No. See, those who wear soft clothes are in royal palaces. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? 
And Jesus says, yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is the one about whom it is written, see, I'm sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, no one greater than John the Baptist has appeared. (laughs) And when you get to the end of Jesus' words, in verse 14, he, he continues to talk. And if you are willing to accept it, he, John the Baptist, is the Elijah who is to come. The Elijah that was talked about in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. It said that Malachi, that Elijah was coming. And Malachi 4, 5, that passage Jesus said was referring to John the Baptist. I'm telling you that I suspect that as John the Baptizer's disciples were going back with Jesus' answer, that as they were beginning to leave, and now Jesus is bragging on John the Baptist and talking about how he was a rugged man who spoke truth even when it was difficult, and nobody was greater than him. And in fact, he is the one who was prophesied about the one who would come and prepare the way for the Messiah. And in fact, he is the prophesied Elijah, This was encouragement. This this was encouragement. I can only imagine that as the disciples of John went back, were going back after Jesus' answer, they had the answer, but their hearts weren't warmed. But I bet after they heard all that Jesus said about how wonderful John the Baptist is and how stellar of a prophet he was and how that he's the Elijah, all of a sudden their hearts are warmed and they weren't walking back to John the Baptist. They were running back to tell him what Jesus had said about him. Friend, I'm telling you, Jesus isn't just answered, interested in giving you answers to your questions. He loves you, friend, and he wants to encourage you. So as you read his word, don't just look for information. Sit, as it were, on a cold winter's day, put your hands over God's word and let it warm your heart. Because the God of heaven loves you and wants you to be encouraged. Well... What we see in chapter 11 is that Jesus moves from there and then gets serious. In verses 16 through 19, he just makes it clear that uh, the generation of people there in Israel at that time were completely unresponsive. You know, he said that no matter what we do, y'all aren't listening. He said, John the Baptist comes and, uh, you know, you say that he has a demon. And then I come and I'm not living this sort of life and I'm not out in the wilderness like John the Baptist was. And you say that I am a glutton, I eat too much, and I'm a drunkard because I hang out with sinners and tax collectors and, and, uh, you know, people that are drunk and prostitutes. He said, no matter how it is that we come to you, that you are not responding. And then in verses 20 through 24, Jesus pronounces woes to unresponsive communities. And I want you to realize that as you look at verses 20 through 24, one of the things that we see is that there are degrees of punishment. Jesus said it will be worse on the day of judgment than for you than those than, than others. He speaks of degrees of punishment. I think that this um, clearly is referring to the fact that on the day of judgment, of, of those that will spend an eternity apart from Christ in a place called hell, there are many uh, who will suffer greater punishment 
for eternity than others. And it seems that it is based upon the amount of light that they had, the exposure to the gospel that they had. And the more exposure to the gospel, the more opportunities they had to repent. And, and, and rejecting that, their guilt is greater. Their guilt is greater. Um, I'm telling you that there, there's always been this question about what about people in other countries who've never heard the gospel? Well, the fact is, is anyone who does not embrace Christ, does not trust in Jesus for eternal life, will spend an eternity in hell. It's our responsibility either to go or to fund those who are going to get the gospel to them. But friend, listen to this. If we look at the principle in verses 20 and 24, the greater punishment in hell by those who did not embrace Christ is going to be people in countries like America because the 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 opportunity to hear the gospel and to embrace it there's so much more opportunity and so the rejection of the gospel is more intentional and so I believe that there that those who are in countries like this that have the opportunity to hear the gospel and yet reject it their judgment on the day of their, their uh, punishment on the day of judgment is going to be greater than those in places where they've never heard the gospel. Uh, in verses 25 through 30, uh, we uh, just see the paradox of God's sovereignty with mankind's free will. Um, that, uh, you know, we understand in verse 27 that uh, where Jesus said, No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son desires to reveal him. So there we see that the Son, Jesus, is the one who is in charge of opening up hearts and preparing people. And yet, in verses 27, 28 through 30, Jesus is saying, Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Weary and burdened by the oppressive legalistic law approach to salvation. The, 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 the weariness and burdensomeness of being over whelmed by guilt of sin with no way of understanding how it can be dealt with. Jesus said, come to me and I'll give you rest. I'll give you rest. I will lavish my grace upon you and you trust in me and I deal with the guilt of sin. But what we see is in verse 27, it says that Jesus is the one who uh, gives to anyone who he desires the ability to, to enter into a relationship with him. But then in verse 28, we see free will. He's saying, come to me, all of you who are weary, whoever wants to. It's free will. It's the paradox. There are some people uh, that love to try to figure this out. I'm telling you, I don't believe that we are capable of figuring out how it is that God is sovereign and rules, rules over every single minute detail while yet also giving mankind free will. But I'm telling you that I don't seek to understand it. I embrace it as a mystery and love it and believe both. That's the way I think that we should do as well. Let's pray. Lord God, we come to you and we do thank you that you are sovereignly in control of all things. We understand, Lord, that you are so in control that a sparrow cannot fall out of the sky without you giving it permission to do so. We understand your control is so intricate that you even know how many hairs are on our head. 
Um, you are that involved in the minute details of life. And yet, you've given us free will. Lord, we don't understand how these work together, but we embrace them both. We rest in you and in your sovereign control, and we find comfort in the fact that our God is reigning supreme in heaven. But Lord, also help us to live in such a way that we are consciously making good, wise, godly choices and that we are pursuing you and that we are seeking first your kingdom and your righteousness and that we are going into the world, at least into our uh, part of the world, and sharing the gospel and making disciples. Lord, help us to do our part and find such comfort in knowing that you are fully in control. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's hard to believe we've already completed now day 16. It's January the 16th. And uh, so I hope that you're enjoying this time as we're uh, embarking into this year, going into this year, looking at God's Word, seeking to understand it greater, enjoy it more, so that we can apply it in the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, Looking forward to meeting with you all again tomorrow. We'll talk to you then. Bye-bye.